the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy, and I... The minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. I hope you all have had a wonderful weekend, and uh, I hope yesterday on our Memorial Day here in the United States that uh, you spent that time not not just in, in being with family, which is good, you know, being with family and, and having the barbecue like is our tradition, but also that we may be grateful for those who gave their lives for our freedoms here in the United States. Let us always keep that in our minds and in our hearts and in our prayers, especially those who have lost loved ones who have put on the uniform. We thank you and we salute you. Well, things are always crazy in the news, aren't they? I mean, we, we, we look out there and it's just always something. It's always something. And of course, that's what the news thrives on. It they, they know that for to get people to click on their website or to turn on their TV show, something's got to be going on. It can't just be, you know, some happy little story that doesn't always that doesn't pull in the ratings that they're looking for. People have to be wondering and curious, and curiosity is always driven the most by some sort of high-stressed incident or, or something that has a, a, a lot going on and, and drama. And so they are always looking for that, or, as we are seeing a lot these days, creating it. We call it fake news. And so the question is for us as Christians, how, how do we deal with this? I mean, when you're surrounded all the time by people who live in the world and with the Internet and our cell phones, we're just constantly bombarded with things of the world. How do we keep our minds and our hearts in line with the will of God at all times? It's hard not to become embittered. It's hard not to become angry all the time. It's hard not to just want to, you know, shake your fist and scream and, and, and wonder, like, what are you people thinking? And, and there are times where I'm like that. I'm just, ugh, tired of it. And so I have to make sure I turn off the radio. Don't look at the phone. Don't look at the news. And just spend time in God's Word. And if you find yourself struggling with this sort of thing all the time, I want to encourage you to look at your Bible this week at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And if you're um, somewhat knowledgeable of the Bible, you'll know that that's the chap- those are the chapters that we, we title as the Sermon on the Mount. And I've talked about that here on the program before a long while ago, but I, I want us to... Kind of review that again, and we won't do it uh, 
all the time, but I think throughout uh, different news articles I will be looking at, I want to intersect certain things from the Sermon on the Mount. We are studying this in our class on Sunday morning. We're going through the whole book of Matthew, and we're currently in the Sermon on the Mount. But these are good things to remember to keep in your heart as far as if you want to be a disciple of Christ, have this attitude in yourself. And Jesus opens up with what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are really their blessings, as they all start with, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the attitude, and here's the blessing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he's saying, talking to his disciples, these are the kind of attitudes you need to have in you if you're going to be my disciple. In fact, the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount can be found in verse 20 of chapter 5 where he says, For I say to you, now the you is his disciples, that's who he's talking to. So he's not telling you here's how you're saved. He's saying this is the kind of disciple you need to be if you want to be my disciple. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want us to start this afternoon by kind of, you know, like an introductory. We might get into a few of these Beatitudes, but let's start with some introductory thoughts here. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it starts like this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, So he saw the crowds. This indicates that there were many folks still following him. The mountain is a hillside or a mountain plateau near Capernaum. Uh, He's sitting down. That seems to be the usual posture of a teacher. And his disciples, apparently some of the twelve, have been chosen. And we see that in chapter 4. And others have been chosen to be his disciples. But the narrowest meaning of disciple is simply one who learns from another. And these disciples came to him, to Jesus, to receive his teaching. Now the purpose of the sermon, is, uh, of what Jesus expects of his followers, is not instructions on how to become a disciple or how to be saved. Remember, these disciples came to him. But simply, if you want to be a disciple of his... You need to have an attitude like what he's about ready to to enumerate here in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Everything said in this sermon seems to be building off of this idea of a superior righteousness than that of the people who, uh, uh, than uh, those who were considered the teachers of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. And and really, that's got to be a difficult thing to receive. It's easy for us now, in our day and age, especially for us Christians, those of us who study the Bible often, when we see the term scribe and Pharisees, we know, okay, these are in general, not all of them, but in general, the hypocrites and those who refuse to accept the teachings of Christ. Why would anyone follow these people? But in the days of Christ in the New Testament, when they heard uh, the terms scribes and Pharisees, they thought of great Teachers of the law. These people are on top of it. These people know the Bible. If you want to know about the Word of God, you'd go to them. And so they were the great teachers. They were highly respected. 
And so to hear Jesus say later on in verse 20, your righteousness needs to surpass theirs, whoa, how is that possible? I'm not even close to the level these men are. Oh, it's so difficult. But then in chapter 5, verse 21 to the end of the chapter, he begins to show them, well, here's what they teach, but I say to you. And he's showing them how these scribes and Pharisees really are not in line with the will of God or with the intent of the law. And so he'll be getting into that. And so if you want to be righteous, now the term righteous is an important term. Well, you know, before we get into that, since I brought up Pharisees, let's talk about who they are in case you don't know. The term Pharisee literally means separated ones. And in the beginning, the intent of the Pharisee, uh, well, doctrine, what it became, but what the whole purpose of it was, was to help people to be more righteous with God. And so they thought, look, if it's unlawful to do these things in the Bible, then let's let's stay as far away from those things as possible by building some other laws and rules and regulations and at first it was just traditions, things to do to keep you away from doing those things. So if it's not good to do this, let's, let's build the, uh, the wall further out and say, let's not do these things just to stay away from it. And of course, even though it started with a good intention, ultimately it became laws, rules, and regulations that man set up, and they began to enforce those things. It became a strict sect of the religion, as Paul notes in Acts 26, verse 5. Um, And in the days of Jesus, there's probably around, and this is going to sound like a low number, but from what I see in research and others have researched, around 6,000 Pharisees. It wasn't many. It was a difficult religion, really a sect, to, to take on. And so not many people were Pharisees, but they were teachers, and they went around teaching. Even Jesus said, do as they say, but not as they do. They may be quoting scripture, but they're not following it accurately. So that's what a Pharisee is. Now let's look at righteousness. The root term uh, of which this is found, righteousness, comes from a a term that simply means right. And the basic meaning of righteousness is is the state of being right before God. Uh, various meanings can be uh, the plan by which man comes to God for salvation. You see it at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, it's a state achieved, uh, a standard by which the world will be judged, and, and so on and so forth. But, but note some of the aspects. I want us to understand where the Pharisees are coming from on this stuff. Here's their idea of righteousness. Their righteousness was merely external and it never touched the heart. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. And of course, we, we, I think we understand what that means. Uh, you see a whitewashed tomb, it, it looks beautiful on the outside. You know, ornately uh, uh, carved stone, perhaps. And they, they would paint it, they would t- take care of it, it would look, groom it, and it looks wonderful. Even our, our uh, cemetery today, beautiful places, beautiful. But you open up the tombs or you dig up the graves, what do you find? You know, well, you know, dead man's bones. Some things that are, in those day and age, unclean things. And that's what they're full of. You're whitewashed tombs, but inside you're, not, you're full of dead man's bones. Your righteousness is external, and it doesn't touch the heart. They circumvented the law in order to justify themselves in accordance to their own agendas. Like they didn't want to take care of their mothers and fathers by paying for things. So they say, oh man, all that I have is... is 
uh, Corbin, uh, I was being given it over to the Lord. That's found there. I think it's Mark seven, yeah, seven and eight. And, that, and so they they would say these things. Oh, I dedicated everything to the Lord. Can't give it to you, but they'd still spend it on themselves. Their righteousness was showy. You know, they would pray in the street corners or in the marketplace where everyone can see them. And when they would fast, it would look as gloomy as possible, because in their minds, righteousness is a showy thing because it's external, and that's what they would do. And their righteousness was a self-centered elitism, like the, the parable Jesus told about the, uh, the Pharisee and the, uh, uh, the sinner, the tax collector, who was praying. The Pharisee was like, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not like everyone else, or like this tax collector over here. I, I tithe and I do all this stuff. And you get this idea as if the Pharisee is saying, aren't you glad, God, that you have me in your church? I'm such a righteous person. Wrong attitude, self-centered elitism, and so that's what Jesus is doing. With. That's what, and he's not dealing with people who are sick and tired of them. He's dealing with people who think these people are the most righteous people on earth, and that, and so he's got to help them come out of that and bring them back to the truth. That's why there, there was, a, I think, a lot of struggles on getting the Jews to accept him because they they haven't been taught the truth of of the Word of God for so long. They had those what we call preconceived ideas. And once you get a, a, an idea of what something means and you believe it, it's hard to let go of that and take on something else. Because once you believe you have the truth, you no longer look for the truth. And so what, so if what you have is a lie, oh man, you're in trouble. Be careful. That's why oftentimes people will say in their prayers, you know, Lord, have, let us have an open heart. Not, they're not saying, let's have an open heart to everything being said and thrown around out there in the world, but an open heart to find truth always. And the understanding that, you know, sometimes I can be wrong, and I want to be open to the truth. And if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, we need that kind of attitude. Another phrase we're going to see a lot in the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom of heaven. And this is uh, interesting because... Throughout the Gospels, you tend, you usually see it being referred as the kingdom of God. I, I think that's because the disciples were confused about the kingdom Jesus came to establish. They would argue about who was the greatest in the kingdom in Mark chapter 9. But what did Jesus do? He showed them a child. You've know, you got to be humble like a child and be like this. They thought they needed swords for the kingdom, John 18. They thought it was... The physical kingdom that would be returned to Israel. Even after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the disciples come up to, to Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're looking for the physical kingdom. That's not what it is. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world in John 18 something. And literally, within you. You know, it's not something you can point uh, to here it is or there it is, but it's something that's in us, which may refer to a spiritual change of heart. That's the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is not looking for some kind of external, physical, showy religion in order to, for people to enter his kingdom. Those who are a part of his kingdom must have a greater and surpassing righteousness to what was being exhibited by the Pharisees. 
The idea of kingdom has to do with the reign of God in the lives of men. Kingdom of heaven, I think, has two significant ways, uh, or, or may have significance in two ways, I should say. It depicts the idea that this is not an earthly kind of kingdom, it's of the heavens. And the expression kingdom of God had a Jewish connotation that I think Matthew wants to avoid. He does not want his Jewish readers to think in terms of the Jewish nation as God's kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. God is looking for people whose hearts are going to be totally devoted to him. And that's that's what he is looking for. Now, I like how Guy Orbison Jr. breaks up the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I want to be following his outline on that. And he breaks it up into three sections. Or, well, three sections with an introduction and conclusion. The introduction is here, chapter 5, the verse 20. And then the rest of chapter 5, that you could title that as, A Heart-Centered Righteousness Surpasses a Law-Centered Righteousness. All of chapter 6, A God-Centered Righteousness Surpasses a Self-Centered Righteousness. And then most of chapter 7, before the conclusion, A Truth-Seeking Righteousness Surpasses a Pretentious Righteousness. And so we're going to start, go ahead and start into the Beatitudes. We're not going to be able to get through all of it, but we're going to do a few of them this, this afternoon. So let's start by uh, looking at this, this, I, this term, Beatitude. You, you may uh, open up your Bibles today and not find it. It may have a title, like I used the New American Standard Bible. And there's these man-made titles. They have it on the beginning of chapter 5. It says, The Sermon on the Mount, The Beatitudes. Well, where does that word beatitude come from? Because that's not in my Bible. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, well, the term beatitude, um, this word is derived from the Latin term for blessed. And the word blessed is a judgment pronounced upon those who possess the qualities of the beatitudes. It can refer to joy or happiness but it's really a spiritual kind of happiness. To be blessed also means to be endowed with divine favor, which always brings, or at least should, bring great joy and happiness to our lives. God is working behind the scenes in useful ways for his people. Therefore, we're blessed, right? Yes, we are. And those who have the character here, here in, the, in the blessings described will find genuine happiness, not only in this life, but most especially in the life to come, in the realm to come, the, king, uh, uh, the, the true kingdom of heaven in, up, up above when we receive our crown of glory. And those who possess these characteristics are entitled to the great gifts of the kingdom which ensure us of continual joy. So that even if for a moment you know, we are sad and sorrowful, the joy will again well up in our hearts. And so I like the term beatitudes. Beatitudes, since we will be what we ought to be if we possess these attitudes. And the very first one, let's look at it in verse 3. We'll read the, the verse first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, blessed are the poor in spirit. The, the, the meaning of poor 
uh, comes from a, a word that signifies a man crouching like a beggar. He is totally destitute. And when I say beggar, if you live here in the Phoenix, Arizona area, which if you're listening to this program on the radio station, 1010 AM KXXT, Tuesday at 4, then you know what, what you see out there on the roads here in the Phoenix area, the, the people who are begging usually on the corners right before you get on the interstates, those people are not real beggars. They're not totally destitute. Not at all. There are so many opportunities for them, in, uh, even as being homeless, that it, it, it's it's crazy. They get they there's places to get food. There are so many charitable places to give them food. People give them food there at the corners. They get cash. They have clothing. They're able to write up signs and stand out there with that kind of freedom. They're fed. They got water. They can go and get shelter. They have a place to sleep if they want it. If they want to, if they really want to go find it. And I have read studies where. You know, some some beggars make hundreds of dollars, even thousands a week from, from begging. They're, they're not totally destitute, are they? I remember seeing one uh, person who was a outside, out there begging, and she was uh, uh, dressed nice, nice clothes, so it could be that she just recently lost her home and uh, was under having hard times. But while she was standing, it was at one of those roundabouts near, near the Norterra area, she was sitting there, and she had some headphones on, you know, those small headphones, connected to her iPhone, and she was listening to music as she was begging. I thought, that is crazy. Just recently, very recently, here in the Cape Creek area, there was a lady begging at the Shell gas station. She asked me for some money, and I've gotten to a point now where I just don't give cash. I will help them if they need genuine help. But when someone is holding one of those four to eight hundred dollar cell phones in their hands, and they have cell service, meaning they're able to pay for it each month, and I also found out from the lady at the register she had just bought a pack, a couple of packs of cigarettes with ten bucks, and she's begging for funds, money. She is not totally destitute. So even though it's uh, being poor, it's talking about being a, a beggar, but it's totally destitute, meaning you got. Nothing. You cannot supply for yourself. You cannot get food for yourself. You can't get anything. But this is talking spiritually, not physically. There is nothing you can do for yourself spiritually. And you recognize that. That's what he's talking about. It's poor in spirit. It has to do, spirit has to do with your own disposition or attitude about yourself. So being poor in spirit means more than being humble in the usual understanding of the word. It means that you. Recognize there is nothing that you can do to help yourself on a spiritual uh, uh, matter. And such an attitude is so different than the world's attitude, especially that of the scribes and the Pharisees. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, kingdom of heaven in Matthew, he's, he's talking about a spiritual kingdom. He's writing to a mainly Jewish audience, and he wanted to correct the Jewish concept of the kingdom of God. So he uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, and he uses uh, the term kingdom, and it has to do with the reign of the king, of God, in the lives and the hearts of men. And why is that kingdom, why does it belong to the poor in spirit? I think it's because only the poor are going to seek it out. Uh, uh, they, uh, those who are in the world aren't going to look for it. They're in the world. They don't care. 
They may care a little bit about spiritual things, but they're not going to really seek out the kingdom of heaven. They feel like they have what they need. They feel like they're doing well. That's one of the difficulties of preaching in the United States is people don't feel like they have a lot of guilt or sin because physically everything's going well, even though maybe spiritually it's not. And so we've got to try to break through that and show them the truth of it. And only those who are poor in spirit, when they recognize where they are at, they begin to wonder, what can I do about this? Well, nothing. Where can I go? And so now they are seeking. They're looking for some place they can go to find the answer to deal with their sin problem and the spiritual destitute that they find, find, themselves, find themselves in. In fact, Jesus is going to be hitting on this more throughout the, the sermon. And later on, he's going to have a phrase or a, a section where he talks about uh, asking, seeking, and knocking. And, um, oh, man, my brain. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that, yeah, in chapter 7, where he says, um, oh, where is it? I'm sorry, my mind is, is just not in there, I guess, for it. Oh, yeah, in chapter 7, verse 7, where he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, just real quick on this, uh, we're going to be hitting on it later on, but he's not talking about prayer there. He's talking about finding truth. And when you're poor in spirit, when you're, you recognize your state before God in, your, in a spiritual sense, you're going to start asking about where do I find it? And God's going to ensure that you, you, you find the answer. He's going to give you the opportunity. He'll give you the map you need, the pattern found in God's word. And when you have it, you're going to start looking for for it. You're going to go to where it tells you to go. And when you arrive at the destination, you're not just going to stand there. You're going to knock. And when you do, you'll be, it'll be open to you. That is, the truth will be opened to you. And that's what we are looking for. That's what the poor in spirit is looking for. And it always begins with someone who's really looking to come to Christ, it has to begin with you being poor in spirit, totally destitute, recognizing how you stand in the the grand scheme of things in a spiritual way. You really can't do anything about the problems you've got. You have got to turn to Jesus. And so I encourage you this week, open up your Bibles, read and study the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, especially if you're finding yourself you know, just drowning in the news of the world and you just need a, something to get your mind and heart geared and, and toned, uh, tuned back to the things of God. Well, I thank you for joining me here on this program today. Uh, again, we got the uh, charity golf tournament coming up this Friday. If you're interested in that, give me a call, 480-818-3807. My name is Chris Macy the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. And folks, let's always make the most of every opportunity afforded to us by the Lord that we do it all in a manner pleasing in His sight. May the Lord bless you in all that you do and that you may do it to His glory. Amen. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Ring it out, ring it out, ring it out, till the sinful world be won for Jehovah's mighty Son. Ring it out, ring it out, ring it out. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.